begin again, must I begin again, who have begun so many loves in fire and ended them in dirty ash? Despair of treating you better than other men would take the taste of love out of my mouth before I had spoken half the lying word. I would have loved you once if I had dared and made a song of it. I'll save my breath and save your peace, God love you. But for me, I'll measure my affection by the dram as men weigh poisons. Honored sir, I am somewhat your friend as far as courtesy. Requires your servant, not at all your slave. I love you far too well to give you love. Sonnet 1 by Joy Davidman I am Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. All the critics and biographers will admit her influence on Till We Have Faces, but almost everybody gives her short shrift and doesn't see her as a co-author. And this phrase, co-author, I think is something I can't prove, but I think it's worth arguing for. And I think that you can see her hand everywhere. I think that he couldn't have written a book about love until he met love. He's writing about friendship love because he's experiencing it with, it with Joy Davidman. He's writing about romantic love because she has fallen in love with him and been writing him love sonnets. I think so. And I think he's falling in love with her, even though he may not admit it. He's writing about family love and he's writing about divine love. And all four of those loves meet in the person of Joy Davidman. I think that she embodies the four loves for him. And that's what Till We Have Faces is all about. And that's why he couldn't have written it without her, because he didn't know those loves until she got there. Episode 5, Muse and Co-Author. Joy as C.S. Lewis's Muse and Co-Author with Andrew Lazo. In this episode, we'll be talking about Joy Davidman's influence on C.S. Lewis's work, most specifically the novel Lewis describes as his best, Till We Have Faces. So much of the last 13 years of Lewis's work would have been different without his wife, dearest friend, muse, and yes, co-author, Joy Davidman. Joy Davidman deeply influenced Lewis's work, yet she is rarely given credit. C.S. Lewis expert Andrew Lazo is a speaker, scholar, and author on the life and work of Lewis and his circle. His recent work sheds groundbreaking new light on Joy Davidman and her collaborative role in Lewis's last and best novel, Till We Have Faces. Andrew currently lives in Alexandria, Virginia with his wife, Kristen, herself a best-selling author on the Chronicles of Narnia. Welcome, Andrew. Your work has spanned almost a decade as you research the love story and influence of Joy Davidman on C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces which you say is far and away his best book. 
So I want you to talk to us a little bit about that before we dive into how Joy helped him with this. You call Till We Have Faces both delightful and troubling. You also write that you started looking for systematic depth and symbolism after reading Planet Narnia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as some people know, Till We Have Faces was was Lewis's last novel. I think it's one of his least read books, and I think it's one of his most confusing. He did call it a couple of times in his letters, far and away my best book or much my best book, but then he quickly goes on to say it was his one great disappointment with the critics, and he was always delighted when correspondents would um, would write to him and, and say that they loved it. It's delightful and it's troubling because it seems so different than everything that we've ever read from Lewis before. I myself turned to it once I had gotten through all of the fiction. I'd read Narnia and Great Divorce and Screwtape Letters and the, the, the science fiction uh, romances. And, and then I was looking for more Lewis, and so I thought I'd plunge in, and I just had no idea what hit me. It's a retelling of the old Cupid and Psyche myth. But it's pretty puzzling to most readers. And when I talk about it, I find that that reaction is pretty similar. That also, I think, goes back to what you asked about in terms of the complexity and the deeply hidden um, structure of the book. When I read briefly um, Michael Ward's brilliant book, Planet Narnia, he found a, a kind of a hidden structure of the the Chronicles of Narnia. And so um, listeners can find out more by reading the Narnia Code or Planet Narnia, the kind of retellings of each other, or visiting Michael Ward's, his website. But he found that the seven chronicles corresponded with the seven medieval planets. Well, this is Lewis's last fiction that he writes before he writes his final fiction, which is Till We Have Faces. And then between writing Narnia and writing Till We Have Faces, Lewis gets a professorship, is elected to a professor professorship at Oxford, which fundamentally cuts his workload in half, doubles his prestige in Cambridge, I'm sorry. So he leaves Oxford and goes to Cambridge and has all kinds of leisure and triple the money. And so he's got this time to really write the fiction that he's always wanted to write. And we know that he started writing this myth even in the 1920s. And so I looked for this kind of hidden structure. And sure enough, I found that what Lewis is doing in that book is talking about love. And that's probably not coincidental because Joy Davidman was involved. Right. That leads us exactly where I want to go. So for over a decade, you've been working on the myth of love and digging into Joy's influence on Jack until we have faces. So I want you to just take it away and tell us how they came to write Till We Have Faces. Joy was also a lover of mythology. So at the very end of her life, finally visiting Greece with Jack. So this seems the perfect book to write together. And together is definitely a word you would use, right? Absolutely. Well, fortunately, Don King has done a great job at assembling Joy Davidman's letters. And in the spring of 1955, we have a couple of letters from Joy Davidman about Lewis and about his writing. And so we know that he, at the beginning of 55, he's at Cambridge. He's got a whole lot more leisure. So what we have is a letter from Joy Davidman in 1955 to her ex-husband, and she's speaking of Lewis, and she says, for the first time in Lewis's life, he has plenty of leisure to write. No pupils, no exams, no college meetings, just a nice quiet room and all the time in the world. So the inevitable has happened. He's dried up. He is quite worried about it and was relieved to know that, no, it's the usual thing in our trade. I imagine, though, he'll be turning out fiction soon again. 
And in fact, that's exactly what happens. And Joy Davidman talks about it later in her letters, where uh, she discusses being in Lewis's home and visiting with him. And uh, the letter says, and this is just brilliant, and I know that you've read this, and I know how it kind of informs your novel, which, and I love the way that Becoming Mrs. Lewis just brings this to life. She says, one night, he was lamenting that he couldn't get a good idea for a book. This is after drying up. We kicked a few ideas around till one came to life. Then we had another whiskey each and bounced it back and forth between us. The next day, without further planning, he wrote the first chapter. I read it and made some criticisms. Feels quite like old times. He did it over and went on with the next. What I'd give to have that energy. When she says feels quite like old times, Joy served kind of like a Max Perkins figure, this famous editor. Uh, Joy helped Bill Gresham edit and write better. And so she's saying that writing with Lewis is her experience with the very first chapter of Till We Have Faces, because that's the book they're talking about, was her assuming her old role as a collaborator for the man in her life. We have a a contemporary quote from her letters again, and this is, I think, the last one I'll quote, but it's just, it's key. She's once again writing to Bill Gresham, and she says, whatever my talents as an independent writer, my real gift is as a sort of editor-collaborator, like Max Perkins, and I'm happiest when I'm doing something like that. Now, here's the key, and here's where Diana Glyer bases her argument about Joy Davidman, and here's where I think that a lot of the critics and the biographers have kind of missed the boat. She says, though I can't write one-tenth as well as Jack, I can tell him how to write more like himself. He is now about three-quarters of the way through his new book, What I'd Give for That Energy, and he says he finds my advice indispensable. And so I had a chance to meet with Douglas Gresham at the Kilns, at Lewis's home, where Douglas had lived as a boy. And this was the weekend of the memorial stone in Westminster Abbey for C.S. Lewis. So there was a celebration that the Lewis Foundation put on at the Kilns. And I cornered Doug right there in the dining room, and I said, hey, so I think that Till We Have Faces... I think that your mother was in some ways a co-author of that book. Now, I had heard that from Lyle Dorsett, and Dorsett told me that he heard it either from Owen Barfield or another friend, George Sayer, but that Lewis had said that Joy David was his collaborator. And I spoke with Walter Hooper about this in his home, and Walter said that Lewis wanted to include Joy Davidman's name on the book, but she forbade him to do it because she said, I just helped him write more like himself. So a lot of the critics won't give her full credit for a collaborator, but Doug cinched the question for me when he says, there is a double author to that book. Yes. And my question is, why isn't her name on the book? Every source I've read, especially yours, points to the fact that her name should be on the book as co-author. I want your opinion, Andrew. Would her name be on that book today? You know, I'm not sure, because one of the hallmarks of Lewis's, especially his life as a Christian, is one of humility, and I think that Joy learned some of that from him, and I think that she might have still refused, because she said she just helped him write more like himself. So, I don't know, maybe it would be like a Lennon-McCartney collaboration where one of them, John would write a song and Paul's name would be on it. They wrote, I think, in light of each other, but I think that Joy had a bigger hand. Now, all the critics and biographers will admit her influence until We Have Faces, but almost everybody gives her short shrift and doesn't see her as a co-author. And this phrase, co-author, I think is something I can't prove 
but I think it's worth arguing for. And I think that you can see her hand everywhere. And so I don't think that Lewis would have started or finished Till We Have Faces without Joy Davidman. And some of that is because of the actual writing. And I've got a couple of examples. And some of it is because of the structure of it and what the book was about. Give us some examples. Because as a woman and as a writer, the thought of contributing to or writing or being such an integral part of something this important, and then maybe gossip 50 years later that I might have been a part of it, but my name isn't on it, would be really hard. So give me some examples of things in there that really point to her fingerprints in this work. Yeah, absolutely. And as part of the the last part of this conversation with Doug, he said that Jack would write up a bit and then um, his mother, Joy, would rewrite it or help him rewrite it. And then he would go back and and write it again. And I want to talk about this later. I think that in some ways, in 1955, in the spring of 55, when they composed this book, Joy was acting like the Inklings for Lewis. And of course, the Inklings had stopped meeting six years earlier. But here's a passage that I think is just clearly Lewis and clearly male. So it's early in the book. I'm on page 22, and he's talking about um, Psyche's beauty. Of Psyche's beauty, at every age, the beauty proper to that age, there is only this to be said, and there were no two opinions about it, from man or woman once it had been seen. It was a beauty that did not astonish you till afterwards when you had gone out of sight and reflected on it. But this idea, at every age, the beauty proper to that age, that sounds like Lewis categorizing and kind of clinically describing beauty right? That doesn't sound like a woman's definition of beauty. It sounds like the kind of thing that Lewis would do in mere Christianity or elsewhere, okay? Here's just one of the most shining places where I clearly hear Joy Davidman's voice. So later on in the book, I'm at 149, about halfway through, and um, Oriwal is having a conversation with her mentor, who she calls the fox or grandfather, and she wants to go on talking But then all of a sudden, it's late at night. Um, Here's what the fox says. Daughter, said the fox suddenly, I think no woman, at least no woman who loved me, would have done it. Sleep comes early to old men. I can hardly keep my eyes open. Let me go. Perhaps we shall see more clearly in the morning. And here's Oriwal, the, the female narrator. What could I do but send him away? This is where men, even the trustiest, fail us. Their heart is never so wholly given to any matter, but that some trifle of a meal or a drink or a sleep or a joke or a girl may come in between them and it. And then, even if you are a queen, you'll get no more good out of them till they've had their way. That. That's joy right there. And I don't think any man could have written that. I think that that's a perspective that only a woman and a woman who has loved a man can really write. And so I think that those are two places where their voices seem distinct. But I think that this, in 1955, this is where they're really beginning to kind of develop a similar voice. Do you think that not only his view of women, but also his love story with joy is built into Till We Have Faces? I think it was Lewis and Joy's um, favorite subject. So I want to return to that structure of love until we have faces. But this is a question worth writing a whole book about. And in fact, uh, Mary Pomeroy Key and Carolyn Curtis have edited together a volume called Women in C.S. Lewis. 
and I was fortunate to contribute an essay to this, and to look at the role of women in Lewis's life and to answer that kind of spurious claim that he was chauvinistic. Of course, Lewis has women in his life for most of his life, but also he lives kind of in a boys' club. He goes to a boys' boarding school, he goes to Oxford, which was integrated, but that just meant that there were a couple of colleges where women went. But I kind of side with Paul Ford, and anything good I've ever thought about Lewis or Narnia likely comes from Paul F. Ford and his delightful companion to Narnia. When he looks at women and sexism, and there's a whole entry on it, several pages, Ford traces how Lewis has virtually no women in his first fiction, Out of the Silent Planet, and the role of women and the power of women kind of grow throughout the arc of his fiction. So you see Paralandra, which features one woman, but a woman who needs rescuing. You have much stronger and more central women characters in That Hideous Strength. You get a variety of women, some of them very powerful and, and positive in The Great Divorce. But it's with in Narnia that you really start to see this arc. You start to see this trajectory. And Paul Ford points out the horse and his boy... And the character of Erebus is kind of the fulcrum, kind of the crux in Lewis not even dealing with women fictively. And then by the end, till we have faces, he says, I think I've done what no other writer has done. I've talked through the length of a book through the mouth of an ugly woman. And her ugliness and her womanliness are just really crucial. So I think that the center of that is right there in, in Narnia and right there with the character of Erebus. Yes, and I think Joy changed that. I think that Lewis's slowly building relationship with her culminates here. I think that he couldn't have written a book about love until he met love, because the goddess of Till We Have Faces is Ungat, and the fox makes it clear that Ungat is Aphrodite, is Venus, is love. Now, Lewis had written about Venus before. He wrote about Venus and Paralandra. Paralandra is Venus, right? And if Michael Ward is correct, he wrote about Venus again in The Magician's Nephew, and that's the last of the Chronicles of Narnia that he finished. And the kind of the planet and the ethos of that book is Venus. But when he, he writes directly about Venus and how love messes around with our lives in that book, because you have Ungat and her son, you have Venus and Cupid, you have Aphrodite and Eros, you know, the Greek names for them. And I think that love is not only the central message of Till We Have Faces, but I think that the reason it's far and away his best book, and this may shock your readers, I don't think Lewis really cared as much as we think about joy. I think he cared about love. Okay, so let's clarify here that when you were talking about joy, you are talking about the concept or emotion of joy, not the person of joy. The concept he is speaking of is in his biography, Surprised by Joy. So if he cared more about love than joy, he is trying to understand love. He is approaching love from all these angles and all these myths and stories. He wasn't trying to avoid love, but it looks like he's approaching love obliquely, like from the corner of his eye when it was right in front of him. Yeah. I think that if anything, Lewis is more surprised by love than he is surprised by joy. And then joy serves as kind of a pointer to that. It's ironic, but not unbeknownst to Lewis, that surprised by joy was kind of an in-joke. In Oxford, they said, oh, have you heard about C.S. Lewis? He was surprised by joy. 
But Joy knew all about that book. She typed that book. She typed up the handwritten manuscript. But here's the last page. And this is where I really think that Lewis's, all of Lewis's writings were not about joy. But he talks about joy because it helps us make clear, or it helps him to make clear what's even more important than joy. He says at the very end of Surprise by Joy, but what in conclusion of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. The old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time of my life, whatever. But I now know that the experience, considered as a state of my own mind, has never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It, this is joy, it was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. It, joy, is only valuable as a pointer to something other and outer. And if the whole story of his life is about joy, I think that what joy points to is love. And Till We Have Faces is all about love. In fact, I will claim that Till We Have Faces is kind of the novelization of the four loves. It comes out as a novel first, and then people don't understand that he's writing about love. And so then he writes up the four loves. And I think that he's writing about friendship love because he's experiencing with it with Joy Davidman. He's writing about romantic love because she has fallen in love with him and been writing him love sonnets. I think so. And I think he's falling in love with her, even though he may not admit it. He's writing about family love and he's writing about divine love. And all four of those loves meet in the person of Joy Davidman. I think that she embodies the four loves for him. And that's what Till We Have Faces is all about. And that's why he couldn't have written it without her, because he didn't know those loves until she got there. Of course, because part of all of this, whether we're talking about Till We Have Faces or why he fell in love with her and the four loves, it's all a puzzle. We don't even know why we fall in love with the people we fall in love with. But when you read Lewis's work with an eye toward love, everything becomes so much clearer. Like you said, it almost feels like an open secret between them. And then when you look into We Have Faces, what you have with Orule is she's in love with the captain of the palace guard, Bardia, who is married. And she never admits her love to him. And so here you have this woman who keeps this long-standing secret that she's in love with a man who treats her as a friend. And I think that's a clear echo of what was going on at that point in Lewis and Davidman's relationship. It's clear that she's in love with him. She dates her poems. And so a lot of these love poems come from 52, 53, 54, right? And then they stop at the end of 54 and in 1955, they collaborate, which is a very intimate thing. Lewis never collaborated with anybody else um, on, on any other book. And so I think that maybe all of her hopes begin to come to fruition in 1955, and maybe she realizes it as they are so fruitfully composing Toya Faces together. So I think that she has broached the monstrous glaciers of Lewis's innocence at this point. And it's obvious that Joy helped him with so much more. Even you say that everybody knows that Joy is becoming increasingly involved in Lewis's writing. Yeah. Joy wrote to Bill, her ex-husband, years before Till We Have Faces, about how she was typing up some of Lewis's work. And she wrote, 
It's going to make people sizzle. It's full of controversial stuff and reversals of conventional judgment. I'm the first person to see those galleys, and I feel honored. By the way, I also read a lot of his poetry. So that's what she wrote to her husband. I know that you've noticed that the structure in Surprised by Joy is similar to Joy's essay, The Longest Way Round. Yeah, your listeners need to know, if they don't already, that Lewis read everything, and the crazy thing is, is he remembered word for word everything that he read. You could do this. You could pull a book off his shelf in his rooms, open it up anywhere, and read a line, and Lewis would quote the rest of the page. You could give him a line in Milton, and he could go on for a chapter. You could do the same with all of the stuff that he did in Latin. And so very often in his writings, the quotes that he uses are quoted from memory. And sometimes there's a word or two missing here and there. But he remembered every single thing that he ever read. And so it's hard to believe that that wouldn't have had some influence on him. Now, I don't want to say what I don't know, but having read The Longest Way Round, which he recommends in the preface to Smoke on the Mountain, I think, and Don King certainly makes a, a very convincing argument that that structure kind of seeps into Lewis's brain. I have discovered, and will reveal when I finally get my book out, I've discovered a passage from her book, Weeping Bay. And it's a passage that I am as sure as I know how to be without any actual primary evidence that Lewis is quoting that passage or reworking that passage until we have faces. And Lewis reads Weeping Bay, which comes out, I believe, in 51, right? Um, Lewis reads that novel. Came out in 1950. 1950, that's right. And there's a passage from there that is clearly clearly not just reminiscent, but a clear echo, if not a rewriting. And so Lewis, I think, absorbs it in. And so I think that that's part of what they do. And they found in each other, whatever happened with them romantically, great friends. And they both approached literature in the same way. And they both had these prodigious memories. But I think that Lewis took to heart what Joy wrote, and it shows up later on in his work. Yes, Lewis has a book called The Four Loves, which was originally a radio broadcast. And Joy had influence here also. Even though we can't call her a co-author in The Four Loves, we can see her there, right? Now, Jerry Root is eloquent on how Lewis will often write a fictional work and then write a prose work as a companion, or he'll write a, a prose work and fictionalize it. You see it most clearly with Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength. He says in the foreword to Abolition of Man that he embodied the principles from That Hideous Strength. He does it all the time. But I think that nowhere is it more clear, and this is kind of the revolutionary spot of my work, I think that what Till We Have Faces is, is a novelization beforehand of the four loves. I can prove that, you know, all day long. But it's not until Joy Davidman arrives on the scene that he kind of sees all four loves. He starts thinking about four loves much earlier. There's a letter in 1940 where he enunciates all four of those same words for love. But it's not until Joy comes on the scene. So we've got Till We Have Faces composed in 55, released in 56, 57. We've got them marrying in 57 in a religious ceremony and living together as man and wife, her remission from cancer. In 58, he does these radio broadcasts of The Four Loves, and it's a different script than 
you know, it's kind of the first draft of the final manuscript. Then interestingly, there's no audiobook of the four loves. There's just these lectures in Lewis's voice. But then in 1960, he publishes the four loves. If you look at the first edition of the four loves, you'll see that the copyright, I believe of the American edition is not copyright C.S. Lewis, but it's copyright Helen Joy Lewis. Okay. Now, I've spoken with Doug about this. I don't think that Lewis was attributing the authorship to her. I think it had something to do with publishing and royalties, and, and I'm not certain, and I don't want to speak out of my ignorance. But I found it very surprising that in that Joy Davidman embodies all four of the loves, friendship love, family love, romantic love, and then divine love, the agape that they had for each other. I found it very symbolic that in some ways... In the first edition, she's credited as the copyright holder, as if she is the author, which leads me to metaphorically bounce to the fact that I think that Joy is the author of The Four Loves in C.S. Lewis. Now, you know, the people who know kind of poo-poo that idea, and, and I don't think Lewis really intended anything about that, but there it is. And even if it's not at all symbolic, you know, by putting it in her name while she was dying— Lewis knew that the royalties would go to her sons. And here's Lewis showing Storgi family love and Agape divine unconditional love for her two boys. And I think that Lewis was never more of a family than when Douglas and David and Joy and Warney and he all lived together at the kilns. When you're talking about Till We Have Faces, you say that this novel is about, among many other things, that only seeing ourselves and all our ugly pride allows love to transform us, and that this is how we find our true selves. Although that is part of the novel, I also think it's the theme of their relationship, that love transformed them so that they both found their true selves. The masks were falling off, and that's when love could happen. Or, as I will say, not the masks, but the veil, right? I think that Lewis kind of had a veil. I think Lewis protected himself from love. If you remember, his father was emotional and his mother died. And so there was great disappointment and he learned to mistrust emotion. And as, you know, somebody raised in the UK, he also has that, has that real reserve. But I think the real key thing is that it began in friendship. Yes, and it began with words and letters. Yeah, and that whole thing that they have with language with each other is is really inimitable. And that's kind of where they came together. I think that he found, I think that, well, primarily, of course, it started with the letters, right? But then there's this absurd idea that he was duped. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that if you read his description of her in A Grief Observed, that you get a picture of somebody who has been duped or overwhelmed by this pushy Bronx Jew, there's this great comment he makes, I think, to Coghill. And he says, he, he, I don't have the exact, exact words, but he talks about being surprised in his 60s by the happiness that passed him by in his 20s. And he's reflecting on how much he loves her. Um, and this is towards the end of her life. He knows that she's going to die when he marries her. But he had the happiness in his 60s that had passed him by in his 20s. And I think that, that it took joy to come get him even so late in his life. That joy, both in concept and in person, changed his life and obviously his writing. Thank you so much, Andrew. We'll hear more from Andrew in the episode Surprised by Love. But our next episode, I'll be talking about one of my favorite things about joy, her poetry. 
I will be talking to Don W. King at Montreat College. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold, published by HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.